I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. We looked at the first half of the first chapter last time. The prophet, you'll recall, was living in the midst of a time where there was quite a bit of outward prosperity, but the depravity of God's people, Israel, was overwhelming. And he called out to God, how, how can you allow this? How can you allow all this wickedness among your people? You are the just God. You are the, the Holy One. And God answered, in my time, in my way, I am raising up those who will chastise my people, those who will hold them to account for what they've done. I'm bringing up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And then he describes them, and they are a wicked people, they are a fierce people, they are a people who are devouring kingdoms before them, amassing lands unto themselves. And they're bringing justice, but by their own standard, regarding the strength of their hand as their God. Well, our text today is Habakkuk's response to that. I'm going to start reading at verse 5 of chapter 1 so that you can, can see what he's responding to. The Lord says, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings, and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes, and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet, because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? I will stand my watch. And set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Amen. Congregation of God, beloved in Christ. Have you faced situations in life? that you struggled to understand? And it seemed like God was doing 
quite the opposite of what seemed like it would be good for you, what would be best for you? I think we've all experienced that in relatively mild ways. Times that we or loved ones have gotten sick or have dropped the ball and failed in trying ways, times when life got turned upside down in an instant. I think of the time 20-some years ago I was driving at work in my car, having what I thought was a great day, was finally starting to get caught up on my work. And I came up to an intersection and as I just about was at a stop, I looked in the mirror and froze because it was evident that the driver behind me had not seen the stop traffic, had not recognized that he needed to stop. He hit me at about 40 mile an hour, hard enough to break my seat and lay me down flat, totaled the car, which was a shame since it was literally one of those cars that a little old lady drove to church. Low miles, good shape. I was uninjured, I thought, till the next day I couldn't get out of bed. And so for the next month, I had to deal with insurance and had to deal with finding a new car and had to deal with finding rides and had to deal with all the aches and the pains that came from it. And my world mildly turned upside down. And I, I couldn't figure out why. Why? Why would God throw that into my life? Why did I have to deal with that right then? Why would God ordain this? Now that's a, a tiny experience, and yet it filled my life with chaos for a month. Now how much more must they wrestle? How much more must they struggle with how to deal with their trust in the Lord? Whose loved one, a spouse or a child, is suddenly killed by an inattentive driver. Or whose best friend betrays him and leaves him broken. Or whose child contracts a, a substantial disease that threatens his life. Or whose business, after long years of labor, is suddenly threatened in the courts by someone who has a vendetta against not even this person, but what they believe. Countless are the situations experienced by God's people in this broken world that make them struggle to make sense of it. It's the question known by theologians as theodicy. How can God be completely sovereign and completely good and yet allow evil or even ordain evil to occur in this life? We struggle with that. It tempts us to doubt that God is truly good. I mean, we're tempted to cry out with Job. I want to see him in the courtroom so he can explain himself. Because we want it all to make sense. We want to see the whole picture so we can judge whether God has done right. But it doesn't work that way, does it? Sometimes God doesn't tell us all that we want to know. And sometimes, oftentimes, He allows us to pause and ponder and wait before He gives us enough of an answer that we can be satisfied. But He does give us what we need. And it's our calling to face those confounding situations in life. Not by getting mad at God or doubting His faithfulness, but by confronting the situation in a way that is honest and that arises from faith and that confesses that God alone can provide our answers. 
in a way that is wise and good. And that's what we see Habakkuk doing in our text for this evening. He had prayed for justice against the wicked who were leading and really filling Israel at that time. And God answered. God said, I'm going to address them. I'm going to bring justice. But the way he was going to do that seemed even worse to Habakkuk. This was a wicked and godless people that God was raising up. They would be merciless toward Israel and hateful toward God himself. Habakkuk was confounded by that. He was utterly dumbfounded. How could our good and holy and sovereign God even think of using such a wicked people? Habakkuk was at a loss, but he doesn't despair. He doesn't reject God. He doesn't retreat into depressed silence. Instead, God's prophet confronts the Lord's confounding purposes. And that's our theme this evening. And it's a theme that we need to see because it's, it's an example that shows us how God allows His people to find peace in situations that they simply can't comprehend. And we all experience them at times. At some point, each one of us will face situations that confound us. We'll be at a loss to understand how this could possibly be for our good. And that's a dangerous time because it tempts us toward rebellion or doubting God or worse. And we must not. Instead, we need to recognize the the blessing God has given us as He shows us how God's prophet confronts the Lord's confounding purposes. But the first thing He does, notice this, the first thing He does, He doesn't even confront the issue itself. Instead, He finds comfort in God's incomparable character. And that's what we see in verse 12. He finds comfort in God's incomparable character. That's important. Because our temptation, when things get suddenly hard, our temptation, when we can't understand the situation before us, my temptation is to complain. Because we tend to have a pretty good... Good? We tend to have a pretty high estimation of our own insight, right? We think we can see what's happening. We have opinions about the people and the groups that are involved. It seems clear to us when something isn't right. Now, of course, we can't take into account the myriad details that escape our attention, like God's long-term plans or the secret sins of those who are involved or the intent of the heart of the people who are intimate with the situation. But instead of recognizing how little we actually know, We're tempted to think we know all that we really need to know. And on that basis to start complaining. But Habakkuk doesn't do that at first. Instead, he looks at what he does know. Are you not from everlasting, he says. In other words, God is eternal. He's no newcomer on the scene. He is the ancient one whose roots are in eternity. Before the world came into being... God is. That's tremendously important. Because that tells us that everything that exists, God conceived of it, called it into being, and set it in motion. Everything that has happened has happened according to His ultimate decree, which encompasses everything throughout all of history. Before this God, Babylon, is at one time both a momentary phenomenon, 
right? Babylon's not eternal. No nation is in God's sight except for the kingdom of God. And Babylon is also naked. God knows exactly what brought them into being. He knows exactly who is leading this people. He knows everything about them and He also knows what's beyond them. The prophet recognizes that, first of all, that our God, He is absolute in His eternity. And more than that, He is the Holy One. Countless times in Scripture, God identifies Himself as the Holy One, the One whose name is holy. That means He's perfect. All that He does, all that He says, all that He desires is without flaw. There's no fault in Him at all. (coughs) So absolute... is our God's holiness, that He must keep Himself separate from all that is unholy, all that is defiled. Surely a God that unholy is not unaware of all the flaws of Babylon. He knew it all along. And more than that, He knew Israel's sins and rebellions. That's a good thing for Habakkuk and us to remember. It means God isn't running willy-nilly into a situation that has implications that he can't figure out. We do that. Right? We make decisions without thinking through the implications, without wrestling with what this is going to bring about, but not God. He knows what is in every man and what is in every nation and what will come about with every decision and action. He is the holy God, and He judges all things right. But now notice... Right in the midst of Habakkuk's confession in verse 12, that possessive pronoun. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? He's not speaking there merely for himself. Habakkuk is a prophet. One who brings God's Word to God's people. He's identifying God as his God and the God of Israel to whom he speaks. In other words, Yahweh, the Lord, He is not some distant deity far removed from the implications of His decree. No. He chose this people to be His. He gave them the promise, I will be your God. They have a relationship with Him, sealed by His own unbroken Word. Those who trusted in God can be confident He will never forsake them. He is my God. Don't miss the comfort that flows directly from that confession. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. That's spoken in a twofold sense. On the one hand, personally, Habakkuk knew what we know. By faith, he is united to the one whom God promised to send to deliver. That means no matter what Babylon and its soldiers would do to him personally, the worst they could do is destroy his body. They couldn't take his soul. So no matter what God decreed for this physical nation of Israel, Habakkuk knew that he could be absolutely certain. He would be in the presence of God. All of God's people who really trust in him in every age can be confident of that. But there's another thing here. Another implication. We, he speaks corporately, we shall not die. God was about to bring the wrath of what would become the greatest empire in the world of its age against Israel. It would look like they were about to be utterly and completely demolished, but they would not die. 
Why? Because God promised that they would be His people and He would be their God. And His word will not be broken, so they will not die. God will preserve them, even if in a foreign land. And in the time that He has decreed, He will bring them back. He will set them and plant them in their place and cause them to flourish so that His promises can come to pass. They will not die. What an excellent comfort that knowledge must have been to that faithful remnant that remained in Israel. In fact, it's only in the light of that comfort that the prophet can confess the end of verse 12. O Lord, You have appointed them for judgment. You have marked them for correction. God is sovereign. Not only is He eternal and holy and ours, but He is sovereign. Babylon rose for a reason. It's because the Lord determined to use them in bringing justice against Israel. Punishing His people for their sins. Admonishing them for their unbelief. But not just for judgment, also for correction. He would use the pain inflicted by Babylon to draw His people back to Him. They would see their need to repent. Their need to trust not in men, not in forces of men, but in the Lord. Yet Babylon would never do that willingly. God was using them. He is the rock. He is the unmoved one. He is the one who is the foundation for all who have true life. Apart from this God, there is nothing in this world that we can honestly, truly trust. But when we trust in Him, we can be sure that all things will work out for our good. Because this God, everlasting and holy, He is sovereign. Again, Babylon didn't just rise up coincidentally. No, The living God raised them up, and He raised them up for His purposes. Do you see the comfort in that? Even though Habakkuk is about to express his grave concern about what they're going to do, and even though he's still surrounded by folks who who deny God by word and by deed, nonetheless, Habakkuk doesn't really complain because he knows that God is on the throne and God is good. Folks, we must never forget that. There is no question that bad things happen, from our perspective, to God's people in this world. We get hurt. We get betrayed. We get disappointed. Evil people slander us, undermine us, cause us to suffer. Think about Doeg the Edomite causing the death of 80 of the priests of Israel and all their families. And then there's the sickness, the disease, the brokenness of old age. But despite all of it, God remains our God. He is everlasting, the unending King. He is holy. His ways always right. He's sovereign. Everything accomplishes His good purposes. And brothers and sisters, because we trust in Jesus, He is our God. We are His people. That's comfort. Nothing can separate us from His love. Nothing. And it's in that comfort, and in that comfort alone of knowing God's incomparable character, that we can honestly come before Him expressing, as Habakkuk did, confusion at what seems in His eyes to be God's unexpected collusion. That's our second point. Expressing confusion at God's unexpected collusion. That's word, a word that's been in the headlines a lot over the last year or so, isn't it? Collusion. Kids, you know what that means? 
It means that someone has made a secret agreement, a conspiracy to do harm. And from Habakkuk's perspective, it seems like God, the holy God, the almighty Lord has colluded with Babylon, this wicked nation that's beginning to rise up into an empire. And that confuses him. Because look what he says in verse 13. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. That's how holy our God is. He's too perfect to even be willing to endure the presence of evil. And yet evil is what characterizes the Babylonians. Now to be clear here, the words used to describe Babylon, evil and wickedness, they're the same words that he used in verses 2 and 3 to describe Israel. So, Habakkuk is recognizing that not that Israel is righteous and Babylon is wicked, but that God's dealing with a wicked people, with a people that are just as, if not more so, wicked. And Habakkuk asks, why? It's like trying to clean up a, a muddy floor with a mop that's been dipped in mud. Why? Why do you look on people who deal treacherously? From Habakkuk's perspective, God is just watching wicked Babylon. Their behavior ought to excite His wrath, but, but instead He allows them to do what they do. Why do you hold your tongue, He says, when the wicked devours? Because that's what the, the Babylonians are doing. They're devouring one kingdom after another, one city after another. They come to a heavily fortified city. They build up siege mounds. They overthrow the city. They destroy it. Kings make their threats and rattle their sabers. They laugh. They have absolutely no fear of them. And God says nothing to condemn them. In fact, He says, I've raised them up. It seems to Habakkuk's mind to be inconsistent. So he asks, why? It's a valid question. How can God in His holiness employ the wicked to do His will? How can He use unbelievers basking in their depravity to chastise His saints whose sins seem relatively small in comparison? How can that be just? But Habakkuk isn't done. In verses 14 through 17, he gives a picture of what he perceives. He equates Israel with the fish of the sea and the small sea creatures. He's talking shrimp and mussels and things like that. And he sees Babylon as a, a nation, an empire of fishermen. They go out with their hooks and they hook fish at random, willy-nilly. They take their nets. There's two different words for nets here. One is a net that kind of surrounds the fish and and gathers them together. The other is a net that half the net floats, half the net goes on the bottom. And they, they use that to encircle everything within. And they drag that up onto the boat and they take little fish, big fish, insects, whatever they find. They gather into the boat and the fish, this is the point, the fish are powerless. They're gathered together. The righteous and the wicked alike, as it were. And problem is these fishermen, they're not godly fishermen. They don't attribute their success and their power to the one who truly gave it, who is God. But instead they sacrifice to their nets and they honor their hooks 
And they say that these are what has made their provision fat and, and abundant. And so they sacrifice to their nets. And he says, well, will you allow this, Lord? Will you allow them? Look at, look at the last verse there. Shall they therefore empty their nets? The implication being, if they empty their nets, they're going to fill them again. Are you going to allow them to continue overthrowing all of these empires, overthrowing all of these cities until they destroy the very people whom you love? He can't comprehend it. Neither can we. We see this around our world today. We see it in the the oppression of God's people in the Middle East at the hand of Muslims. When they're beaten simply for confessing Christ. When they're jailed for daring to preach Christ to other Muslims. When their homes and their churches are burned because they call themselves Christians. It's evil and it's done by evil people and yet God remains sovereign. How can that be? We see it in the evil slander and the persecution that is committed against Christians in communist nations. We see the injustice in our land. Perpetrated against Christians who refuse to celebrate the popular sins of our age. But brothers and sisters understand this. Jesus experienced affliction at the hands of the wicked also. When he suffered on our behalf, was it not at the hand of wicked men? Was it not the scribes and the Pharisees whom he himself had denounced as hypocrites? Was it not by men who were self-condemned by their lust for power? Did he not suffer too at the hands of Pilate and Herod who were misusing the office that God had bestowed upon them? And yet God used those wicked acts of ungodly men to accomplish the best purpose of all. To condemn His Son in our place that we might be pardoned. To enable His Son to overthrow death, our last enemy, so that we might live eternally. And because Jesus endured that suffering at the hand of the wicked, we have been restored. He suffered what we deserve, and through His suffering, we have been forgiven and reconciled to God. We've been adopted as God's children and co-heirs with Christ. And, and Revelation, or Romans 8 tells us, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs, those who inherit of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified. Jesus suffered at the hands of the unjust, and so will we. It's hard for us to grasp when we're in the midst of that, when you're suffering the oppression of the unjust, when the wicked prosper as you struggle and suffer. It's at that time with Habakkuk that we want to cry out, Why, O Lord, why would you allow this? But the prophet shows us that's okay. God wants us to pour out our hearts to Him. He understands our perplexity. Our confusion makes sense to God. But our prayer must be spoken. Hear this. Not in rebellion. Not as those who sit in judgment over God, surely not. But as those who have confidence born of knowing the truth about God. 
who recognize how faithful He has been to us and who expect that God has ordained all of this, though we can't understand how, but He has ordained it all for our good. And that leads us to the last point of our text. And it's a brief one, but it's important. In verse 1 of chapter 2, having found comfort in God's incomparable character, having expressed his confusion at God's unexpected collusion, the prophet now awaits clarity through God's indispensable revelation. Understand, Habakkuk has done all that he's able to do. He remembers who God is. He expresses the concern of his heart to God. Now, he has no answer, so he waits for God to provide. Listen to how he describes his intent. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart. The terminology recalls the work of the city watchmen. These were men who were, I mean, remember, we didn't, this was back in the day before there was any kind of technology for discerning the approach of the enemy. So they would build towers, sometimes far out in the field, a couple miles out, where the enemy's approach could be discerned. Sometimes simply on the city walls, so that tower would be the highest point for miles around. And there sat the watchman, earnestly, continuously watching for the approach of the enemy, for any sign that the enemy was drawing near. And as soon as he saw that sign, he would send a runner to go and tell the king, to go and tell the general, to make sure that the people in power knew what was coming. Well, that's how Habakkuk sees himself. He sits quietly, eager for insight that, that he lacks. He's looking. He's expecting that God will show him what he needs to know. And when he receives that insight, he will tell others that they might share in his comfort. Well, for what does Habakkuk watch? Ultimately, for insight from God. He's, he's waiting for God's Word, which is insightful, which never leads us astray. And notice... The last phrase in verse 1. This is his goal. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. You see, God's servant has just expressed a grave concern about God's plan. It doesn't seem just to him. It, it's not something he can reconcile with God being the holy God who loves us. But he knows he's missing something. He knows he's missing something because God always makes sense and God is always good toward His people. Habakkuk understands he just can't see the fullness of the picture. So he waits for God to correct him. To show him what he needs to see. Beloved, we should long as deeply as Habakkuk for the insight we lack. Whether we receive that insight quickly or whether it's not until... The day of the Lord. We should long to see it and expect as Habakkuk did. He went expecting that the Lord would provide and so must we. One commentator points out that there's three really great lessons in this one verse. And I think he's right. The first is Habakkuk detaches himself from the problem. He has poured out his heart upon the Lord. Praying for wisdom, praying for insight, and then he stops. He leaves it with the Lord. 
That's important. We can get so wrapped up in that problem, in that dilemma, in that thing that we don't understand that we become useless for anything else. Habakkuk, he leaves it to the Lord. Lays it at his feet, as it were. And then secondly, he expects God will answer. When we ask God for wisdom, we should expect that he will answer. Maybe not the answer that we expect, not, maybe not in the way that we anticipate. But he will provide. Sometimes he provides through the counsel of those around us. Sometimes he provides by opening one door and closing others. And most often he provides by through the work of the Spirit showing us what his word says. The answer that we already have that we've just not yet perceived. But one way or another, by his word, through his Spirit, God will give insight to us. We should expect that. And thirdly, we should wait persistently. He resolves to wait on the Lord until that answer comes, and he, he intends to sit there until it shows up. And so must we. Not that we inactively sit in our closet, as it were, but, but we resolve that we will continue to look for what answer God will provide. Next time, Lord willing, we'll see how the Lord answers. But brothers and sisters, I submit to you that in this world of brokenness and of sin, we will often find ourselves in Habakkuk's shoes. Unable to reconcile the God who is holy and good with a situation that seems anything but either of those qualities. When you experience those situations, do not doubt or curse God or allow your confidence in Him to be shaken. But instead, follow the example of Habakkuk. Remember who this God is. He's the Holy One, the Eternal One, the Faithful One, the Sovereign One. He is our God. In the light of your faith in Him... Pour out your heart. Express your confusion to Him as your loving Father. But then wait. Wait on Him. Expect Him to answer. Search His Word. Study His Word. Talk to those whom God has put in your life who are wiser than you are. And the Lord will provide the confidence you need. Maybe not a full understanding of the situation, but the confidence you need to continue serving Him with faithfulness and joy. May God provide for each one of us that we might bring Him glory. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You are the one who possesses all wisdom and knowledge and understanding. You are the one who directs and guides all things for the good of Your people. And we pray, Father, that You would grant to us the insights that we need and the patience of faith that we crave. That when we're confused, when we're confounded, when we don't understand the situation before us, that we might turn in faithfulness to You, trusting You to give us exactly the insight and the understanding that we need. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.